Good morning. If you would all please pray with me. Almighty and gracious Father, the true understanding of your holy word helps us to grow in the, fruit, in the fullness of the salvation you so freely offer in Christ. Grant to all of us that our hearts, being freed from worldly affairs, may hear and grasp your holy word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness to your praise and honor. Through Christ our Lord, amen. The scripture reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Genesis 2, verses 8 and 15. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Beth. We are, uh, this summer, we've been spending a lot of time in just a couple pages of our Bible, namely pages one, two, and three. And so for most of June and for a good chunk of July as well, we're considering, um, we're going back to the very beginning. And we're looking at God's creation of everything. And we're not just looking at the fact that God created everything. We believe he did. And, uh, but we've spent some time looking at why does he create And what is he doing in creation? And now we're starting to make the turn and really ask uh, today, more intentionally, what does that mean for us? And why does this actually matter? Who, Who cares that God made everything? And who cares why he made everything? Does it really matter how all of this came to be? We saw uh, very first week, page one of our Bibles, that in creation, what God is really doing is separating, you see a lot in days one, two, and three, especially two and three, he's separating water, and water in the Old Testament represents chaos and uncertainty and oftentimes death. So what is God doing by separating the waters and creating hospitable environments, but he's, he's creating order and beauty out of chaos, And then we saw a couple weeks later that then God invites us into that work. And you heard as Beth read, when God says twice, he says, rule over, he says to to Adam and Eve, rule over all of creation. He invites us into his work. Just like the vice president is the second in command, we are, in a sense, vice kings. It's almost as if, and I know this sounds a little heavier, um, maybe you don't want this responsibility, but it's almost as if God says, you are my second in command over all creation. And there's a lot of responsibility that comes with that. 
This morning, we're really going to tie those two ideas together and flesh those out a little bit more. I haven't spent a whole lot of time talking about the phrase, the image of God. And I'm not going to use that phrase a lot this morning, but in a sense, that's what, or that's where the scripture is leading us. God has made us in his image. We see that in Genesis 1, 27. That's such a central idea, in fact, that that becomes part of these three lines. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And Hebrew scholars tell us that's a poem, which means that's the first poem in the Bible. And what do we do when an idea is too big for us to really wrap our minds around it? We, we write a poem or we sing about it, and a song is just a poem set to music. So the very first poem, the first really big idea that we're trying to grapple with is that God has made us in his image. What does that mean? This morning we're going to see that part of what that means is that he has given us a very distinct job, a very distinct task, and our work is to continue his work. Our work is to continue his work. Now, if you take that down the logical train and make all the connections that that implies, you might arrive at something surprising, which is what happened to me a couple of weeks ago. I was telling a friend, another friend who's a pastor, that I'm preaching through creation, and he says, oh yeah, isn't it neat that God never finishes creation? And I thought, wait a minute, that doesn't, of course God finished creation. Of course he did. He he finished, He he made everything in six days, and he looked back and he said it was very good, and then he rested on the seventh, and rest implies completion. And he said, yeah, that's, that's true, but, but if everything were really complete, then why does it say that God said subdue creation? So this morning, what we're really thinking about is, is the, and, and there is a sense that, that creation as God intended it and originally made it was complete, and yet there's a sense that it wasn't. And he invites us into his work of completing creation and of creating order and beauty out of the chaos of the earth. In a sense, we're really just thinking about two or three words this morning. And the first we get from Genesis 1.28, God blessed them. That's Adam and Eve, the first humans. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Apparently, there were parts of creation, this is page one of our Bible, even after God had made everything, that still needed to be subdued. And that word subdue is a, it's almost a violent word. If you you look at the other places in the Bible where that word is used, especially in the Old Testament, it is a a roll up your sleeves like grit and sweat word. You know in the movies when somebody finds a wild horse and they, they, get on the wild horse and the horse and and it just takes every fiber of muscle and strength that they have to stay on the horse but eventually they tame the horse and then they ride off into the sunset right that's how it always goes or at least it it went once and i saw it once but that's the image that comes to mind like that's what subduing is it's every sinew popping out of your skin effort to take something that is completely wild and disordered and chaotic and bring it into order and that's what god is calling Adam and you and me to do along with him. Now, I said it's a violent word, and in a sense it is, and we can think, well, is that okay? But subduing or taming, maybe we think about it like taming, that's a good thing. It's a good thing. 
One, it's good because what God, it's what God calls us to. But think about um, if, if you're a dog person, if you have a dog, aren't you glad your dog is tame? I mean, I don't know how many thousands of years ago it was that the first humans tamed and domestic, they took a wolf and somehow, I don't know how, they made it not really a wolf anymore. Tame and calm and domestic and obedient. Your, your beloved golden retriever, and let's just use a golden retriever because let's, th- is there any better dog in the world than a golden? And those of you who have different dogs, eh, no. There's no better dog in the world than a golden retriever. They're perfect. Amen? Amen. Your golden retriever used to be a wolf. Bloodthirsty, wild, dangerous, and yet through the process of taming and subduing that wolf, we now have man's best friend. Subduing is good work. It's hard work, but it is good and necessary work. But it also tells us that there are and even were parts of creation that were still unsubdued. I don't know that that's a word, but you know what I mean. That were wild, that were not tame. And God says to Adam and Eve and to you and to me, fill the earth and tame it. Subdue it. Bring it under control. Bring the chaos into order. He tells us something similar in Genesis 2, verse 15. It says, The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now, next week, we'll look more at those two words, work and keep. But let's just consider that if God put the first humans in a garden and then said, you need to work in this garden— that means the garden wasn't finished. Like a finished garden wouldn't need any work. The fact that God makes Adam to work in the garden tells us, one, that work needs to be done, and two, that that work is good. That God intends for work to be a good thing. Now, I know work is not always good. And whether, whether you work a nine-to-five or whether you're retired and your work, so to speak, is to volunteer and take care of the grandkids and all of those things that come in retirement. And somehow every person I know who's retired has said I'm busier in retirement than I ever was before. Whether your work is as a stay-at-home parent, just looking after the kids, there are a lot of times that our work doesn't feel good or life-giving or meaningful. And last week we considered that we're in those moments, we're feeling the effects of the curse or the consequence of sin. But originally, God intended for work to exist and to be good. Work the garden, he tells Adam and Eve, and keep it. That means preserve it. Because things naturally tend towards chaos. That fish that you put on the grill and grilled on Tuesday... You might have opened the fridge this morning and thought, not so good anymore. Things naturally tend towards disorder. The woodwork on the exterior of your house starts to rot and you have to fix it. You start to notice a couple of rust spots on your car or a little rattling noise in the engine. Your savings slowly get spent up. Relationships deteriorate over time. All the world needs preventative maintenance, so to speak, to keep it functioning, to keep the order, to keep the chaos at bay. And God tells Adam, work the garden and keep it, preserve it. Pull those weeds. Do you see? 
both in his command to subdue creation and to keep, to work and keep the garden, we get evidence that God actually wasn't finished with creation. Now, why does that matter? I'll tell you why. I'm so glad you asked. I'll tell you why it matters. It matters. Think about it negatively. Because if God was finished with creation and he had done everything there was to do and then he told us to work, our work would be nothing but busy work. It would be pointless. It would be the equivalent of saying, go carry this bucket of bricks around the house five times or go dig a ditch and then fill it back in. And that's work, but it's, it's meaningless. It's, not, it's pointless. There's no purpose to that work. But if in fact, <clears throat> excuse me, if in fact God is still working in creation, if in fact he's not, there's a sense that he's not done with creation, that means our work has deep, deep meaning and purpose. God is not just telling you to dig a ditch and then fill it back in. He has purpose for you and your work and what he has called you to do. It also tells us something and helps us to make sense of the world around us. That left to itself, without God's continuing work and without our continuing work as we partner with God, the world will dissolve naturally into disorder and chaos. I know that's a grim view. That's bleak. It's, a, it's, it's pessimistic maybe. But think about it. Does the world naturally tend towards order or disorder, beauty or chaos? There is, I'm going to call it a myth, that the natural arc of history has been an arc towards progress, that it's been an upward slope, if you were to graph it. And I don't want to knock it, like, there have been some incredible developments. Let's just consider the 20th century. There have been incredible developments and advances in the 20th century in technology and all sorts of things. But progress is not inevitable. In fact, the historians tell us the 20th century was the bloodiest century of any century, any hundred-year period in history. It's not just progress. So let's just think about the 20th century. We harness the, the power of the atom. And, and just you go down to Seabrook and you see the effects of harnessing the power of the atom. One power plant can power, I don't know how many homes and businesses, and, and there's just incredible power just in the way atoms move, and I don't understand how it works. And we can provide so much relatively cheap and clean energy and keep the lights on, keep the air conditioners running, praise God. And then we figured out how to use that same power and level two cities in 1945. Progress is not inevitable. Maybe an even more powerful development in the 20th century. We, we networked the world. We laid phone lines and then cable lines and then fiber optic lines. And now you can pull out your phone and you can have a live video chat with somebody halfway across the world. And actually now it's not even going through the lines. It's just going through the air into a satellite and however that works. And like in real time, you can talk to somebody anywhere. That's incredible. We've connected the world. And then we figured out how to use those networks and those connections to easily spread all sorts of hate and racism and just gratuitous amounts of pornography and all sorts of chaotic and destructive content. Progress is not inevitable. 
and the world left to itself does not automatically progress. It needs constant intervention, God's intervention, and he commissions us and says, you're in, suit up, to keep the disorder and the chaos of the world at bay. God has made us to work, and he's made us specifically to tame and to prevent the chaos of the world around us and to preserve the order and the beauty that he's made. The million-dollar question, obviously, is how do we do that? That sounds like a really tall order. Let's just remind ourselves from last week. Last week, we spent a little more time talking about sin, and you can define sin a hundred different ways, but the way that we defined it last week is this. Sin is when I take or co-opt the right, and I use the word right in air quotes, the right to discern good and evil for myself instead of trusting God's word about what is good and evil. It's when I get to decide what is good and what is not good instead of trusting God to decide and to tell me what is good and what is not good. And the curse of sin, we looked at the curse last week. Another word for curse is just consequence. The consequence of sin is that the world trends toward more chaos, not less. And you don't have to work very hard to see how that works. Because if you are, if you are co-op, if you're saying, I get to decide what's right and wrong, and I get to say, I, I get to decide what's right and wrong, what happens when you and I disagree about what's right and wrong? Conflict and chaos and broken relationships and disagreements. How do we counteract that kind of chaos? That's inevitable. When the whole world says we want to decide for ourselves the difference between right and wrong, between good and evil, so that we can become like God, right? That was the motive in Genesis 3. How do we counteract that? Well, certainly it can happen in a hundred, a thousand, a million different ways. What we learn through Genesis 1 and 2 is that God intends for our whole life, including our work, like our nine-to-five work, to be worked towards countering and taming that chaos. Let me just give a couple of examples of how it might look. Two hypotheticals and one that I've heard of that actually happened. Because what I want us to see is that, okay, this sounds really high, it sounds lofty, it sounds very abstract, and it sounds so overwhelming, there's so much to it that I can't possibly make a dent. And a lot of times when the, when the job seems too big, we get paralyzed. What God intends is that wherever we are, with whatever we have, to just do what we can with what we have and to let him work through that. Imagine a good supervisor who does this when she notices that her usually reliable employee, has just, her work has just been slipping a lot over the past couple months. And she could just bring down the hammer and say, you need to shape up. But instead, she calls the employer to her office, or nowadays she invites her employee to a Zoom meeting, and she just gently asks, like, what's going on? And she has to be she has to be direct. Like, you can't not be direct about this. But she says something like, you know, you don't, you don't seem yourself lately. I've noticed. Like, you seem more distant than, than normal. And I've got to be upfront. Your, your work has suffered. And I'm concerned because that's actually, that's not like you. I, I, I know who you are and I know the work that you usually do. And, 
Is everything okay? I mean, even just in that approach, how different is that and how freeing is that? And maybe through that conversation, she finds out that this employee's mother has just gotten a really bad diagnosis. She's had to spend a lot of extra time taking care of mom and driving her to doctor's appointments and helping her manage her medicine. And, and right after work, she goes and, and from 5 o'clock to 11 o'clock at night, she's with her mom just taking care of her. Of course, now she's not sleeping well. You know how these things compound. We've seen it. Some of us have experienced it. And now that the supervisor learns this, she's able to work with the employee to find ways to make sure, like, okay, we still have to make sure the work gets done. Let's make sure the work gets done. But can we find a way to do this while recognizing all of this other chaos in your world? And can we find ways to give you the flexibility to do this in a way that's going to work for you? What's happening here? You see what's going on? The supervisor is helping to tame the chaos in her employee's world. She could have said, you know, your, your work is suffering. You just got to get it together. What is that doing for her employee? It's amplifying the chaos because now employee feels like I'm not doing good enough and I'm not good enough and I've got to figure out my mom and there are all these competing, but how in the world do I do all of this? But instead, just with a slight change in approach, the supervisor, instead of amplifying the chaos and contributing to it, is de-escalating it. Or consider a stay-at-home mom who has just, I mean, had it up to here with her four-year-old son. I know this, this is hypothetical. This never happens in real life. But she's, hypothetically, she's had it up to here with her four-year-old son, and it's only lunchtime. And she's told him clearly at least four times this morning, stop jumping on the couch. And it's lunchtime, and she's making him a PB&J, and she hears that telltale squeak, 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 squeak. She can feel the lava just rising. It's like up to her eyes. <laughs> and she catches herself and she says, says, says a quick prayer, like, God, I know you tell me to be patient. I know I should be, and I just, I don't have it. So you, you're just going to have to fill in the, like, give me something I don't have because I just can't. And she knows she has to go in. So she puts down the butter knife and she leaves the peanut butter jar open on the counter and goes in. She tells her son, son, I've told, I, how many times have I told you? Stop. And, and now, like, there, there have to be consequences. And you know the, kid, the look in the kid's face when they hear consequences. Whatever that consequence or the decision is, their face just falls. And she disciplines her son. However their family practices discipline appropriately, she disciplines her son. And it works because now he's just a, a pitiful pile of tears. And, and so she wraps him up in a big hug. And she says, sweetie, it's so important. It's so important that you learn to obey. And I know you feel like you just got carried away. And maybe you forgot. Maybe you did. You just forgot. But you have to learn to obey. Because we want what's good for you. And sometimes you forget. But it's so important And when you obey, you honor mommy and daddy. And when you obey, you honor God and you honor Jesus. And I know you don't understand right now, but I just need you to trust me that this discipline really is to help you learn to obey and honor me and daddy and God. And and I want you to remember this. And she looks her son dead in the eyes and says, I love you and I'm not angry at you. And I forgive you. Of course I forgive you. And I will always be here for you. She wraps him up in a big hug. 
What's, what's she doing? In that interaction, what's she doing? She could have come because, remember, the lava was here and just laid down the hammer. And she probably feels like she should have, right? And would have been, feels like she would have been just, because I've told you four times already. And what does that do? That just amplifies the chaos. And maybe the son really did just honestly forget. And now he feels like he's not good enough and mommy's angry at me. And, but instead, by going in, one, she's, like discipline is, she's not avoiding her responsibility to discipline her kid. That would amplify the chaos too because that's not going to teach him discipline and obedience and all these like, very important long-term skills, fundamental skills. And by wrapping him up in a, in a big hug and being quick to remind him that she loves him, she's not angry at him, she forgives him, she's always there for him. She models God's love to him. And she tames the chaos in his mind, that narrative that mommy is angry at you and therefore she doesn't love you anymore. You see? She's taming the chaos. And in that moment, whether she knows it or not, she, she's mommy and she's Christ to her son telling her son that even though you sinned, even though you did wrong, and there are consequences for sin, I will always take you back. Always. See, she's working and keeping the garden, subduing creation. Here's one last story. This this one actually happened. It's told by a pastor um, in New York City named Tim Keller. Some of you are probably familiar with him. It's one of my favorite stories. I think I've shared this before once, maybe twice in a sermon, but it's worth sharing again. It says a woman had just started coming to his church, and he asked her, what brings you here? And she said, well, I just got a job. Good job. This is in Manhattan. I had just gotten a job with one of the major media networks, one of the three-letter, you know, CBS or ABC or one of those. It was a good job. It was a high-paying job. And she said, shortly into my tenure, just a couple of months in, I made a mistake, and it was a big mistake. It was a, a six-figure mistake. Like this, the company was going to have to shell out hundred, literally hundreds of thousands of dollars to fix this mistake I had made. And I just knew I was out of a job. And, and my boss's boss called me into the office, and I knew he was going to fire me. And he looked me in the eyes, and he had me sit down, and he said, I should fire you. <laughs> but you're not going to lose your job. And I, I was just dumbstruck. Like, what? I, I just cost the company several times my annual salary, and you're going to let me keep it? And he didn't explain why, and he just let her go. But eventually, you know, because people talk, word always gets out. She found out that her boss, she just talked to her boss's boss, but her boss, right above her, had vouched for her and actually gone to his boss, her boss's boss, and told him, you know, it was honestly... It was a big mistake. I know it's going to cost us. It was, it was my fault. I didn't train her well enough. I, I should have been overseeing her. She's new, you know, so I should have been just a little more hands-on in, in the process. Let's just keep her on. And he convinced his boss to keep her on. So word got out, and she found this out. And so she went to her boss and said, I heard you did this. And he said, well, yeah. And she said, why? Why? This is, this is New York. This is where people take credit for other people's successes, not where people take credit for other people's failures. And this is where people, people blame others for their own mistakes instead of blaming themselves for others' mistakes. This is completely backwards. Why? 
And he tried to downplay it and he tried to dodge, dodge the question, but this is New York and, you know, people are persistent and they don't give up. And so finally she prevailed upon him and he, he finally said, you know, I, fine, I, I did it because I'm a Christian. And in my faith, we believe that God took the consequences for our errors on his chin. And I guess if, I just, if, if I'm a follower of Jesus and God calls me to live the way he lived, then I'm going to do the same for other people. You see what he did? He's taming the chaos. Because the prevailing winds of our culture say, look out for number one. And her boss should have insulated himself and protected himself and his job and let her just take the punishment. You can find somebody else to do the job who's not going to make that mistake. But what does that do? It encourages disorder and chaos and distrust among the team because now anybody on his team is afraid to make a, make a mistake. And now everybody's tense and on, egg, on, on edge and walking on eggshells. But instead, he stuck his neck out and literally risked his own job and tamed the chaos. He was the image of God in that moment. I told you, we're really thinking about the image of God. What does it mean that God calls us to be his image, the image of God? And I haven't used that phrase, but that's really all we're thinking about is what does it mean to be made in God's image? It means for starters, our identity is saturated with dignity and worth and with value. that you're not a mistake and that you're not junk because God doesn't make junk. It also means that he makes us to work because he is a working God. And just as his work is to separate the chaos and to bring order and beauty out of it, so too our work is to wade into the chaos and separate it and to bring order and beauty out of it. And in order to do that, you have to enter the chaos. You can't do this from a distance with an Xbox controller. You have to roll your sleeves up and get some dirt under your fingernails. And what did God do when the word became flesh? But he rolled up his sleeves and he got dirt under his fingernails. In fact, he got blood under his fingernails. And he came in Jesus Christ to break the chaos and the curse of sin. And the only way to do that is by entering the chaos and the curse of sin and by becoming the curse on our behalf. This is what we talked about last week. He broke, get this, Jesus broke the chaos, not by crushing the chaos first and foremost, but by actually letting the chaos crush him. By letting the chaos of death rule over him. For three days. But by submitting to, chaos, to the chaos first, he wound up crushing and completely deflating the chaos because on the third day he rose again from the dead. And all of a sudden we see the victory of order over disorder, but only because he was willing to enter the disorder. We are made in his image. And so God calls us to enter, not to insulate ourselves from the brokenness and the sin of the world, but to put on our waders and get in the middle of the stream. And just as Jesus submitted to the chaos in order to break the chaos, he tells us, go and do likewise. And so the mom who has no patience left in the tank and who goes into the living room anyway 
and who wants to just give in to the urge to let her kid have it. But somewhere finds the strength. I'll tell you where. It's the Holy Spirit in her breaks the chaos. And the network executive who puts his own neck on the line and his own job and his own future security on the line because of his employee's mistake is doing what? He is the image of God entering the chaos, taking it on the chin to break the chaos and to bring order and beauty back to creation. But we can only do this because Jesus has first done it. Make no mistake. If we leave it to ourselves, if we just think, if you just get really inspired and think, okay, I need to go out and break the chaos, like you might do okay for a little while, but left to our own, eventually we will start reclaiming that right to decide good and evil and we will start looking out for ourselves because eventually we always judge in our own favor. We have to look to Jesus. We have to be filled with his spirit. It's only through his death and his life and his resurrection that we find our life and our resurrection. It's only through his power that we find our power. It's only because his spirit lives in us that his breath is in our lungs that we can live in his image. He has broken the chaos. He's tamed the chaos. And now we get to work with him. Amen.